Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. This is exactly how you go into a relationship with the natural world. And through that relationship with the natural world, you will develop a relationship with the invisible world. You will develop a relationship with the plant world. You will develop a relationship with the animal world. And it really takes commitment. It really takes time. And it really takes showing up. And it really takes a willingness, you know, an an openness. I think Mm -hmm. that's the biggest piece is just that openness and that curiosity. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. I have a very important conversation to bring to you today, and I suspect that this will be one of many on the podcast as this topic becomes a bigger and bigger interest of mine. Today's conversation is with my colleague, Dr. Maya Shitreet. She is a pediatric neurologist and we talk a shaman, and we talked all about plant medicines today. And just before we get into this conversation, I wanted to shout out a recent review, which I just love. This is from Kelsey Marie from the US of A. And she writes, I am so happy that I stumbled across Dr. Stephanie's podcast. As a woman approaching her mid-30s, I've experienced some major shifts in my physical and mental health. I've seen various doctors who've tried to, quote, normalize, end quote, my current challenges, driving me to take control of my health through research and education. This podcast has been extremely informative for me in the process and has helped me to understand topics ranging from hormones to morning rituals to champions mindset. I now feel more educated, more empowered to advocate for myself with my doctors in my job, and in my relationships. Thank you for helping me to understand the difference between normal and common. I'm honored to call myself a Betty. I mean, if that doesn't just go right into your heart, that is why we do the podcast. So thank you, Kelsey Marie, for taking the time to write that out and letting me know how this has impacted you. I just love hearing stories like this. And If you, Betty, would love to leave a review, I am always watching them. I'd love to call them out, love to call out my Bettys on the podcast as well. So back to today's 
um, conversation. So just before we get in, I do want to put a little bit of a disclaimer here and say that what we are talking about today are schedule one drugs, meaning that these drugs have no currently accepted medical treatment uh, or medical use uh, in the US, in Canada, or wherever you are hailing from. So these are technically illegal drugs. So we are not condoning the use of these drugs. Um, There are a lot of contraindications for using them, which we talk about today. What I wanted to begin this conversation around is how we can begin to use plants as medicine and as a tool for us to be remarrying ourselves or reconnecting with nature. So just as a little background on on Dr. Maya, she, as I mentioned, pediatric neurologist, herbalist, urban farmer, founder of the Terrain Institute, author of The Dirt Cure. She is a shaman and a transformational healer who is passionate about our reconnection to the sacred natural world. And in our conversation today, Dr. Maya and I talk about spirituality. We both love the word magic, so you can tell that this is going to be a really good conversation. We talked about the reconnection to the self, both Mother Earth and us as women. And we talked about who plant medicine is and is not for. So there's actually quite a lofty list of contraindications in terms of who should not be considering plant medicine. The intentionality, integration, preparation for a journey with plant medicine, the importance of set and setting. And this is something that you'll hear a lot. Um, You know, we, uh, in this conversation, we talked about my experience with MDMA and which is kind of the street name for that is like ecstasy. And, you know, you always hear about ecstasy at raves, but it can also be um, very much a therapeutic tool for healing. So we talk about MDMA as an empathogen, how it works, um, the stigmatization of plant medicines and some of the master plants. So we talk about ayahuasca, San Pedro, and again, um, some of the medical uh, contraindications for use here and some of the outcomes that you can expect if you are ready for a journey like this. So like I said, we are talking about schedule one drugs, Um, but in my opinion, something that has been incredibly useful for people that I know who have experienced... um, extreme trauma and have exhausted all other avenues of of therapy and care. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Maya Shitreet. I am a huge fan of the Bio-Optimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovering health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a 
a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. I have been wanting to have this discussion now uh, on the podcast, honestly, for a while. And I think that this is this is the first time we're going to have this conversation. Certainly not the last one, because I want to have conversations that matter. But also, this is something that has uh, deeply impacted my own personal and professional development um, as a as, as a mother, as a woman. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast um, today to be discussing. We're going to be talking about psychedelics. We're going to be talking about mushrooms. We're talking about some master plants and how we can really improve our relationship with the natural world. So before we dig into all of that, I want my listeners to understand why I was so excited to have, I had posted in, in a community that we are a part of, like who is the expert here? And like, without fail, you were one of, you know, the unanimous person that came up. Um, and you're really interesting because you, you sort you walk in two different worlds, right? You are a conventionally trained pediatric neurologist. You're also a herbalist as well. So I would love for you to maybe explain uh, to me and the listeners, how did you come into this blend of work where you sort of are blending sort of literally two different worlds into um, into your practice and into your life? <laughs> well, I would say um, that I probably blend many different worlds. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think, you know, some of us are those bridge people who kind of walk in that more conventional world. And then, you know, there's a whole broad spectrum of other worlds that we can walk in. And, um, you know, I think for me, my very deep belief is that um, we don't have to give up 
this, um, you know, for the, for the cloak of respectability and, you know, being considered a, a scientist and a professional that we don't have to give up this connection to um, spirituality and to the earth and to nature and to plants and to all of these things that really were our medicine um, physically, emotionally, and spiritually for uh, millennia since the beginning of time. It's only actually a very, a relatively brief time that we haven't been in that paradigm. So for me, it's been my journey, which I'll, I'll talk about, of, of really um, giving myself permission to um, take kind of take that straight jacket off. Um, there are a lot of people, I think, in the med- you know, when they see a doctor, they say, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you can only do this, and there's a lot of rules around it. Don't and- wear that rainbow-colored necklace that you're wearing. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> but that's a, that's a really big thing. Like, we were taught, like, you have to, you know, cover... Like, I remember my first, you know, couple of patients, and it was like, I had to wear, like, a, a button-up, like, blue shirt, like, khaki pants. Like, it was like, uh, you know... So anyway, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there, there's there's certain there's a certain um, um, baptism that we go through in sort of the conventional world where we have to show up a certain way. Well, and I think especially as as women, and for me being a woman of color, I think it's a little bit, you know, there's this idea we'll let you into our club, um, but you can't bring any of that. Um, weird stuff or any of that empathy or any of that, right? There's all of these pieces um, that have really been um, cut out of the healing model, um, which we could barely call a healing model anymore if we're talking conventional medicine. So um, my journey really has been to, um, to not compartmentalize myself, to not fragment these parts of myself that were always there. Um, So a lot of people will say, oh, like, you know, you're this conventionally trained person. How did you discover, you know, being more integrative or plants? And my my story is really that, um, and it's not that I grew up in a hippie environment or anything like that. I grew up in, um, you know, I grew up in a suburban neighborhood as an only child to, um, well, a mother in particular who's a baby boomer and very interested in me being, you know, the head of a department or, you know, she was not, she does not have any tolerance particularly for anything super holistic. She's not, she's not that excited by that or, or really, you know, didn't have that as her aspiration for me. But my childhood was going and finding, you know, there was a creek near my house and I used to go there and, um, spend all this time building little altars, which I didn't know were altars (laughs) at the time, but building little sort of sacred places and making potions out of different plants. And that was actually, you know, for a long time, very much, you know, growing food in my backyard, um, which I did do with my parents. And, um, and then, you know, life went on and that's not really a, a valued thing, or at least was not at that time. And, what was valued was achievement and, you know, being in the mainstream paradigm and all of those things. And so I, I did those things. And um, I was very interested, though, in going to medical school because I, I saw a special um, by Bill Moyers called Healing and the Mind when I was in college. And um, there was this story of a young girl with lupus who had, um, 
who was having renal toxicity, kidney toxicity, when she took her meds for lupus. And so they were worried she was going to go into kidney failure, but if they stopped her meds, then her lupus would flare. And that also could have been, you know, very dangerous and even fatal for her. So they started to give her castor oil with her meds every time she had her meds. And then eventually they stopped giving her the meds and just continued to give her the castor oil instead. And she responded exactly as if she was on meds. And I heard that story. And it wasn't that I hadn't entertained the idea of going to med school, but I heard that story and I thought, great, that's interesting because they said, well, this is a field of medicine called psychoneuroimmunology. And I thought, ooh, like that's what I want to do, psychoneuroimmunology. Now I know the field of medicine I want to go into. I wrote my med school essay about it. They let me in. I don't know why. And, <laughs> um, and, you know, I did med school, but in that period of time, I got married and I had three children and med school is totally immersive and it's very, you know, in a sense, brainwashing. And you're kind of, you know, you're expected to stay in the paradigm. And mm. that's what the training is also about. It's not just about you know, understanding human physiology and how to treat people or developing interview skills or all of that, there is this sense of you, you will walk in the exact path that we tell you to walk in. And um, so, and I did that. And I did that through pediatrics training and then pediatric and adult neurology fellowship. But during my fellowship, I got pregnant with my third child. And um, at a year of age, he developed asthma or what looked like asthma. Um, and uh, really like a developmental regression as well. And here I am in pediatric neurology, watching my child have a developmental plateau slash regression and falling and hitting his face on the ground and, you know, all these things. And um, it was just terrible. 10 months of really no one taking me seriously, being treated just like that hysterical mother, even though I was a doctor, you know, and um, then I discovered that he was actually allergic to soy. Uh, through my own research, my own very, very deep research into the scientific literature, because it wasn't taken seriously. And everyone just said, well, he's reactive. Oh, he's fine. He's going to be okay. And I took him off of soy. His asthma really disappeared. I then had to do a lot of healing with him because of those steroids and antibiotics and all the other things that happened. And so that journey really took me into um, a deeply into practicing integrative medicine for my practice and ultimately writing my book, The Dirt Cure. Um, and, I, and I called him, you know, my son, my youngest son, my muse, because um, he really led me onto that path. And then again, when he was almost eight years old, we had mold in our apartment. We had to move out of the apartment. He was getting sick again um, and did a whole, you know, reboot of the apartment, stripped everything to the studs rebuilt, came back in, it was tested, it was fine. And within two weeks of moving back in, he had a seizure. And it, he had never had a seizure before. He was to had totally been fine otherwise. Um, and what I realized in that moment when he had that seizure, um, which thankfully was his one and only, was that there was something energetic going on there. And I thought, you know what? I'm one of the only pediatric neurologists in the world. I was seeing people from around the world with all kinds of intractable, difficult to treat neurologic issues and um, treating them. And I, I had a lot of, I think, hubris at that time. And I thought, oh, like I really could help anybody, you know? And then there my son was in my arms and I knew, just fully knew, I don't have the tools to heal him right now. 
and I'm going to have to learn them. This is going to be a journey for me. And that journey took me to um, a fourth generation shaman who also had a PhD in ethnobotany that I had met um, and learned with at a conference, an herbal conference. And I went and found her for her to, she was in the States again, and she was doing healings. And so I drove six hours to New Hampshire and she did a healing on him. And I talked to her and ended up going on a trip to Ecuador um, for two weeks and did a very deep study in plants and began this journey of learning about ethnobotany. And it was not a trip that was about going to be in plant ceremony, but it was about learning about ethnobotany, learning about the plants of the jungle and becoming intimate with the plants of the jungle in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of is the beginning of, you know, what the last um, decade of my life has been where I really have gone into not just the physical part of medicine, um, which integrative medicine really can be, stay very physical, you know, no matter how holistic we call it, it can really um, be all about supplements and diet. And it's not that those things are not important. They're, they're critical, they're foundational. But then there's this emotional and spiritual component that for me has been transformative. And that's where a lot of my work now focuses in terms of my teaching work and my, and my healing work. I love that. And I was, we were just talking about this in the pre-chat and our, our conversation was getting so good. I'm like, we have to stop and, and get into the podcast because I was saying that one of the things that I often would see in practice is people will come in with physical ailments, but it's not like, the, I mean, other than like an acute, you know, you fall off a ladder and now you have, you know, some sort of, you know, derangement in terms of the disc or the spine or, or whatever, but it's the physical stuff that actually shows up last. Like you're underneath every physical ailment. In my, um, I was a a chiropractor uh, practicing in in, uh, physical practice for about 16 years. But every single time when you would just take the time to peel back a few more layers with the patient, there was emotional disease and emotional sickness as well. And I really came to the conclusion, I've talked about this on the podcast before, that most physical manifestations of disease. There is an underlying, if not originating, uh, emotional or spiritual uh, component to it. And I would love for you, because I think that there's, when we talk about spirituality, uh, when we talk about emotional health, this is not I think there's, you know, I just interviewed uh, Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist who talks a lot about, you know, trauma and childhood trauma and unresolved things living in the nervous system that transcends through, you know, as you age, we still have these firing patterns that get um, activated within us. But maybe you can spend a moment or two defining spirituality because I think that it gets conflated with religion a lot and we we and while there are some overlaps like you can have you know experiences in a religious a sense where you feel connected to a higher power um they are not uh interchangeable words so could you just define uh, and i've asked this question a couple times on the podcast before but i'm really interested to to see what your uh, like how you sort of separate the two or or if you do at all maybe they're the same thing for you yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I want to just quickly say about that emotional piece, the emotional and spiritual underlying piece of the physical. Yes. That, um, <clears throat> it's just important to me because I've had people really talk about this with me that, um, that 
it's really important to differentiate the fact that we do absolutely have physical illness um, as as the most downstream of our emotional and spiritual well-being um, on the one hand. And in fact, even a physical injury in the paradigm that I've learned and that I've studied with the elders that I've studied with can sometimes be uh, a discharging of energy that is pent up and that we're not releasing or moving properly. Yes. Um, that's how, you know, I've, I've come to understand those kinds of events. Um, but on the other hand, I want to differentiate that um, and distinguish that from this idea of dismissing people's physical illness because they're, they, it's all emotional or this is, right? I mean, in other words, our responsibility as healers is to be looking at the emotional and to be looking at the spiritual in my opinion, as yeah. well as the physical. So there is a lot of dismissing, especially of women, you know, you're hysterical, you're anxious. This is oh, just- Oh, I hate that word. I hate that. <laughs> hysterical. Right. I mean, I'm a word. I hate that word. It's like, it's your uterus that's causing it. It's like, go F yourself. <laughs> like, please don't tell me that it's my uterus. Like the word hysteria is from, it's like, it's, you know, this demented state from the uterus, like go fuck yourself. But anyway, um, yes, please go on. I agree with you. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I always just like to make sure that, you know, I've been explicit in my yes. ideas about that. It's not, it's not, yeah. So you're like, oh, it's all in your head. Like it's a psychosomatic, you know, represent. And, but the thing, the thing is you really can't separate the two, right? If and therefore have I have no responsibility as a healer to help you with that. Or therefore your physical symptoms aren't real. No, physical symptoms are real when they yes. are connected to emotional well-being and spiritual well-being, right? They all are manifesting. They're all mirrors of one another. So it doesn't mean, we don't get license or we don't get a pass uh, as healers to then set aside the physical symptoms just because we don't understand how to maybe go deeper. It's, it's on us then to say, you know what? I think there are emotional and physical components, but I do not know how to treat them. Yes. I, 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 I wish I could. I can refer you to other people, um, but I want you to know that you know I believe you, and this is very real. That's yeah. thank you. you know, for that. I, I appreciate that distinction. That's great. Um, so, as far as spirituality goes, I, I think it's really important to distinguish it from religion because um, spirituality, in many ways, was co-opted by organized religion um, because spirituality is actually um, it's a, a very deep connection with the sense of um, what I would call the invisible world, you know, which we would call ancestors, we would call the spirit world, we would call them the world of nature um, or, or universal consciousness, right? I mean, there's a lot of ways to think about it and different traditions and many, many, there's a, a huge spectrum of ways that people might experience this, this world of, of spirituality. But the important point is that it is absolutely empowering to be in a relationship with the invisible world, however that may look to somebody. And so that sense of individual empowerment and collective empowerment, really, is, is very threatening 
in a sense, right? And also, you know, some of the history of how spirituality was co-opted, let's say, by government and church, goes all the way back to the European witch hunts. That's right. Quite a bit about in my in my school because um, that period of time was really the beginning of capitalism, and they wanted to have workers who were not connected to the cycles of nature and were not connected to things that were auspicious versus not auspicious. And they didn't want people to have a sense of agency. So it was important to take away that sense of agency from people and, um, and to make them feel like their only avenue to spirituality. And I would add to that magic um, which to me, we can have a conversation about. I what, love that you're saying this. I'm so, my heart um, is so happy right now. Yes. Yes. So my favorite you know, words. <laughs> it's, right. And so it's become this bad word and it's woo. And, you know, as a doctor is talking about magic, but, mm. but really to me, you know, magic is, is, is this, um, it's this sense of wonder and awe and, and, um, this kind of ethereal relationship that we have with the invisible world and with this reverence and reverence and yeah. and right absolutely reverence is is a perfect word right because i think what our purpose here is to um be in the sacred right to have a relationship with the sacred so here we are um you know that's not useful in capitalism <laughs> that's not useful in in obedient workers so part of what that whole initiative was about was to take away that sense of connection to nature, connection to um, the magical world, uh, to the invisible world, and, um, and to take away that sense of empowerment and, to, and for the church to own magic and for the church and the government to own power. Um, so, you know, this is not, I'm not necessarily doing an indictment of the church here. I mean, I think, you know, what we just need to understand is that there are, um, there were bigger interests that were not about, you know, us and our relationships um, with the sacred. So, yes. so for me, spirituality is having a, a, a relationship, an intimate relationship with the natural world, with the invisible world and with the sacred. And this is so important for the women that are listening to this because they're so, I mean, the women that I, that I typically work with, people will often come to me for uh, rehabilitation of some kind in the physical space. So maybe it's, you know, metabolism or body composition or what have you, but a hundred percent run rate. We are often always talking about giving yourself the grace and the space to, you know, it's like, you, you, it didn't, it, this didn't happen overnight. So can you give yourself some self-compassion? Can you love yourself a little bit? Can you give yourself, can you love yourself enough to give yourself the space to become more of who you already are? And I think as women, just following on that, you know, church uh, you know the the witch hunts and the burning of the books and on the burning at the stakes and all of that. I think that we have over time really become divorced from the invisible world, the nature as you're talking about, and also our internal compass. We now only look externally for validation. So, am I good enough? Do I have the like? Do I have the accolade? Do I have the the letters behind my name? Do I have the house? Do I have the things or the whatever you whatever you have defined as success, we now are 
looking for exogenous sources of validation rather than internal. And you know, maybe you might argue that the internal world is is paralleled with uh, and the same as you know being attuned with nature. And really, all you have to do is look look at our periods, man. Like, look at our menstruation. You spend time outside, you get natural light, and all of a sudden, it's like magic. You know, you start, you know, menstruating, maybe on the new moon, or you start menstruating along with some sort of uh, some cyclical nature that that follows the moon. And just to kind of tie this up with my words that I hate, lunatic is another word that I cannot stand because it it again denotes like a mental illness or that you're dangerous or that you're but really the etiology of the word is someone who is of the moon or reveres the moon right so um i think that what you're saying is so important for women because i it's important for men and women truly but mm. for the women who are divorced from their bodies who sort of how i was for many years like you know you live from the throat up right um, and your body is like scary and it's just a vessel to bring your brain around to wherever it wants to go. Um, it's important for us to learn that we are of this world. We are part of the natural ecosystem and to pretend like we're not because just for some reason that we're human and, you know, we are not, you know, susceptible to the natural cyclical rhythm of the earth is, is silly. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the same way that we have, um, you know, I mean, I think what's happened, not so much that we're divorced um, from that invisible world, but more that we've, um, we, it was tortured, it was, we were tortured into suppressing it, right? It's not gone. That relationship is there. It's there right now, but it's sort of only about us being willing to make ourselves an invitation for that and not to be afraid, rather than upholding this model that we're in that demands literally the impossible of us, right? I mean, you can, you, right, if, and, and body image is a perfect example of that because, you know, I don't care if some, first of all, if someone is a size zero, a size 12, or whatever size they are, you call that person fat, it's going to be totally triggering. Everyone has something that they don't like about their body. I don't care how perfect, you know, according to the paradigm, and also they will be criticized right? If you're, you're either too thin, you're too fat. I mean, what, I, what I'm saying here is that this is really a trap. It has nothing to do in my mind with really with beauty or, or any, any of the things that we think it has anything to do with, to be honest. I think this is a trap and it's a way to distract women in particular and it, yeah. and it affects men too, but it yeah. certainly is very focused on women from being powerful, from being in that deep connection with themselves. And in fact, we are of the earth, as you're saying, and therefore the reverence for the earth translates to our bodies. Our bodies are absolutely sacred. Our bodies are absolutely part of the cycles of the seasons of the moon, right? I mean, we, this, is, this is clear because of menstrual cycles and many other things. And so um, I think all of this really is and it it beautifully ties into the topic of plants and and plant medicines in fact but um you know i think it sets the stage for why these plants both herbal you know herbal medicine in general and plant medicine as more master plants teacher plants became so taboo because now we're thinking about well these are very empowering plants 
and they're very powerful plants. And that's whether you're talking about a dandelion, which, you know, look at the, look at the, um, you know, level of, right. I mean, look at the level of, of, of attention and, and, you know, uh, uh, the attack we do on dandelions, just as one example, which is an incredibly potent medicine. Every you want to lower your blood pressure, you take some dandelions, some garlic and olive oil. It, that's a, that I, that's my, one of my favorite sides is dandelions saute a little bit with some garlic, some olive oil. And it's, you know, my, um, my ex-husband uh, is uh, Greek. They're of Greek descent. And his mother, oh, like bless her heart. Like she would make just the best dandelions. Like I still, and sometimes I still get them when, uh, when, uh, when the kids come with like food from, from their, um, from there, yeah, yeah, but like the best, and these are from the old world. This is just like natural. Like you just go and pick the dandelions from the back, and you put them in the, you, know, you put them on the stove, or you know maybe you have them. Like she would also um, uh, the chamomile. She would ha- she would get like chamomile um, and like soak it in water, and then you had like chamomile tea. And if you were feeling anxious at the end of the day, she would like make you a little chamomile tea and. So yes, I, I mean, plants from all, like, we're talking about plant medicines, but you can start off with like the dandelion and the chamomile tea, right? And then move all the way up to what I would like to talk about um, around like, you know, psilocybin and psychedelics as well as a, as a proxy for healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I go outside, I put my lemon balm in my container and I, you know, pour water and let it sit and make, and make sun tea with it. And lemon balm is the gladdening herb. So it's just a way of, you know, especially in hard times to feel more joyful and feel mm. more relaxed. And, you know, that's what plants do for us. And, you know, I'm really glad that we get to ease our way into the conversation of plant medicines um, in terms of psychedelics, because I do deeply believe that, um, there's a preparation, right? You, you ideally, from my point of view, you're not just going straight from conventional into, you know, psychedelics. There is a, there is the possibility of doing healing work with all different kinds of plants. And this idea that we need to have the most potent, most sacred plant that we can possibly find um, to facilitate healing before we do some of those other things is a very Western mentality, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's, very, it's, it's very, mas- not masculine, but it's like the profane masculine. Like, it's just like the, give it to me. I'm going to take it all. I'm going to like, you know, rape the land. It, it, it's very uh, like, let me plunder for my own benefit kind of thing versus like, why don't you just slowly layer on? I mean, that's how we heal. It's like, you can't just go from, you can't go from zero to running a marathon. Not that I'd ever recommend running a marathon, but you know, in terms of training, you have to layer, you have to watch and wait for the adaptation in the body before moving to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's also that idea of give me the strongest thing you have, you know, give me me the strongest. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's, I think there is this spiritual preparation. um, And for me, part of that preparation has been, I grow the plants, you know, which are legal to grow um, just (laughs) to be clear. Um, But, you know, I grow these plants in order to have a relationship with them, right? Not in order to consume them. I don't consume Mm -hmm. my plants, um, but I, but I'm in relationship with them. I meditate with them. I take care of them. And therefore that is being in their vibration. 
right? Which is a very real thing. And we know about that from things like heart math, right? That we share an electromagnetic field with anything that has an electromagnetic field, whether it's another person, whether it's an animal, uh, like our pet, right? There have been studies on that or whether it's plants or, or any, you know, rocks or any other thing. Even so- water. You, if you swear at water and then for, I, I forget the study, but like there was like, I think it was a Japanese, I forget his name, yeah. but. Soro Emoto. Yes. He would like, so they would say, I hate you to the water. And then to the other batch of water, like, I love you. You're so beautiful. You nourish me. Thank you. And then they froze it. And then when they were looking at the particles of the, um, looking at the particles of the water, like it was much more deranged and ill. Uh, wasn't, I mean, maybe you can explain the study better than I, but it was just the sort of the derangement when you were, you know, yelling profanities and like, you're the worst water ever versus, you know, thank you for nourishing me. Thank you for coming into my cells, being part of my, you know, being part of my life. It was much more beautifully uh, symmetrical and there was more organization to the, to the crystals when they froze them, correct? Yeah. So they froze them to just below freezing and they formed these crystalline structures and so the, it was the organization, as you said, of the crystalline structures that they became, you know, and you can look at the pictures. He actually has a book. I might even have it in this room. Um, and basically you can see, you know, when they play certain music um, versus other kinds of music or, or got water from different parts of the world, how the crystalline structures were either very organized, very beautiful, looked almost like snowflakes versus um, being totally disrupted and, and chaotic. and um, and I think that's just a perfect example. I'm so glad you brought that up of how this is our relationship to the natural world, to the invisible world, this idea that there is a consciousness within everything. Um, and plant medicines, well, plants and plant medicines in particular are one vehicle of helping people to understand that relationship and that paradigm, right? That, that there is this consciousness in everything. And, and that, you know, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer um, wrote about this idea that we refer to plants and animals as it, you know, or water as it. And in native culture, indigenous culture, you don't refer to any of those entities as it in this objectifying way. It's, it's, um, that is an example of being um, of, of desecration, really, in a sense. And so to be more consecrating and to practice the sacred, um, there's, a, there's a way of really referring to these different entities um, with, a, with a different kind of pronoun in a different way that is um, acknowledging their consciousness and their life force and their sense of awareness. I think that only I, I don't I don't know how far we can go into the language rabbit hole, but when you look at English, it tends to be there's so much more gender neutral words. Like when you look at the Romance languages, like French, you look at Portuguese, uh, which is my background, Spanish, uh, Italian, Greek. All of the and I'm, I'm I'm of course missing like those are the languages that I'm more familiar with, but of course there's other languages that are would follow this rule as well, where they tend to. Um, it's like she, it's like a him or a her, right? Like in, in Italian, it's like la macchina, like the car is a girl, you know? Or So I, I don't know if that's just a, a Germanic descent because English tends to be, I mean, I've, I've heard many people like poly, people who speak many languages, like English is the easiest language. Like it's just, you can, 
the structure is like super simple. We make everything gender neutral. You don't have to learn, you know, the the verb, you know, the subject object verb thing is like the most simple uh, mm-hmm. than, you know, if you speak Arabic or, you know, Cantonese or Mandarin or any any of these other uh, languages, but as it pertains, to, I wonder if there's a if there's a difference in, and maybe you can speak to this in terms of some of these different cultures, in, like if, in the Spanish speaking world. If you were to go to Chile or Peru or Ecuador, where you've been, if the way, if the language, because the language is it, it it structures your reality around things, right? If you were calling something, if it's a her or a him uh, rather than an it, if we have a bit more respect for um for for is that is that am i pulling things out of out of the air here or is that is that something that you noticed in your um when you were in south america i think what i would say is that actually spanish you know is not the language of south america um it's actually a, a colonized language you know it's a colonized yes. language as you know which we don't think of i yes. think us in particular and and maybe in north america altogether um, you know, we don't always think of Spanish as being a language that was imposed um, as, you know, English was imposed here um, in, the, in the U.S. But um, in fact, there, there's a lot of grief among the indigenous communities and people who had lineage from the indigenous communities about their languages being taken from them yes. um, and being actually ripped from them, right? That, it, that Spanish was imposed. So it's interesting. I do agree with what you're saying that uh, English is a much more objectifying language. And I think I'm not, I mean, I'm not enough of a linguist to be able to know the, the exact story of that. But, um, but again, in, you know, in, uh, and, and there's a lot of resentment, too, in the indigenous communities around the term dialects, because what they say is, no, these are languages. Right. They're different nations, and these are languages, and they're our languages. And calling them dialects is minimizing of, of our languages. The origin, our, yes. Our cultures and the yeah. origins, which are unique and particular and, um, and sacred, right? So... Um, but but those communities, um, the ones that I'm aware of, and I think more than the ones that I'm aware of too, again, are very particular about their the sacredness of all living beings and and feel that, you know, taking us to this idea of the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual, that all illness begins with spirit being out of spiritual alignment with yourself with those around you and with the land you're on. So, um, and certainly we could talk about the invisible world, right? With the the ancestors and so on. So being, being in a, a, a respectful, a deeply respectful, humble relationship with all living beings is absolutely foundational, not just to spiritual health, not just to emotional health, but also to physical health. And of course, ecological health. Yes, and I appreciate you bringing that up as well. In my, you know, I was thinking about the languages in terms of, you know, the European countries, and I have family uh, in Brazil, you know, they speak Portuguese, but to your point, uh, that's not the original, uh, you know, uh, indigenous people to that country. So thank you for that. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, 
and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So what, when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about emotional and spiritual, um, disease, let's call it. Um, let's start with plants. Let's move our way up to psychedelics. But what are some things that you might look for or you might suggest someone do in order to start harvesting a better relationship uh, with the natural world? You've mentioned a few things. You grow plants, you have uh, tea. Uh, I had mentioned, you know, dandelion and uh, chamomile, which are things that are you know, just part of my everyday. I, I love, I love having uh, chamomile tea usually in the evenings. Um, what are what are some other simple examples if someone is just you know living this uh, maybe toxic uh, is, is an appropriate word here uh, modern life where they're living indoors. What and you know there's not a lot of natural sunlight, not a lot, not a lot of general movement. Like they're you know going to their soul cycle in the morning and then that's the only workout that they get they're not moving around they're sitting they're compressed what what might be some ways that we can begin to um, bridge a better relationship with plants and then we can start talking about plant medicines well so as you said i think growing plants is absolutely a wonderful way to start developing an intimate relationship with plants so and that can be growing rosemary in your in your apartment, right? I mean, this doesn't have to be, you know, I have, I live in New York city, but I happen to be blessed with a, 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 a large enough um, yard where I happen to live that I keep chickens and I grow, you know, vegetables and, and a lot of my own medicine that I then make into medicine. So I'm able to, to do that. And not everybody is, but when I lived in an apartment, I grew herbs inside, you know, and I, push the limits. I tried growing tomatoes and other things inside as well. But, um, but having that relationship is really important. I think um, go, spending time in nature and that, you know, even if, again, you live in the city um, or you don't live near nature, making a priority sometimes to go to the park, to, you know, sit down and be quiet in a natural place, to go to the woods, right? I mean, in New York City, we have a lot of woods around New York City in parkland mm-hmm. um, or in botanical gardens or, you know, an hour out of the city for people who can do that, just as an example. And I'm saying New York City, A, because I live here and B, because people think of it as super, super urban. Um, there are those possibilities. And I know that that is in some ways privileged, um, but but there are parks available to all. So um, spending... The, the main thing, you know, I would say building a relationship with the natural world and with the invisible world uh, requires time and commitment like any relationship. So think about what you would do if you were courting, you know, 
a, a partner, right? Or someone that you were interested in knowing better, or a friend, um, you would, you would go and want to be your most charming self and you would want to get, hopefully, um, if it was a healthy relationship <laughs> after the holistic psychologist. So um, <laughs> if you were in a, <laughs> in an emotionally healthy relationship, um, then you would be coming and uh, with curiosity, with interest, with a, a desire to know the other person, to share about yourself, right? These, this is exactly how you go into a relationship with the natural world. And through that relationship with the natural world, you will develop um, a relationship with the invisible world. You will develop a relationship with the plant world. You will develop a relationship with the animal world. And, and it really takes commitment. It really takes time. And it really takes showing up. And it really takes uh, a willingness you know, and an openness. I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest piece is just that openness and that curiosity. Yeah. And I think that that's true for psychedelics as well. I mean, you really do have to want to, you know, when you're talking about deepening the relationship and, you know, coming with your, you know, charming self and letting, you know, getting to know the other person, I think that psychedelics, or when we're talking about this in terms of plant medicine, this is also an opportunity for you to go inward, to know your you know, maybe your shadows or, you know, to become intimate, you know, to develop a better relationship um, with yourself. So when we, when we think about this in the context of plant medicines, who would be, if, if you were to say, this is the perfect avatar, who would this be for? And then maybe we can also contrast that with who this would not be for, who would, you know, not be someone that you would maybe recommend um, plant medicines for? Um. Well, I would say this. I think who is it for? For people who feel called. And I know that sounds vague, but if you're thinking maybe I should, right? Or this sounds cool, you know, like sit with it. You know, it's not for the it's not for the weak hearted. And and you know, you really it's a commitment and 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 um you know, we'll talk a little bit about what the experience can be like, but um, I really recommend that the only people who would even consider doing something like this, it's because you, it's come to you in some way. And it could be hearing about us talking about it. I mean, whatever. And then it's like, I can't stop thinking about it. You know, it comes to you in different ways. Now you hear it here. Now you hear it here, right? That and then and then that's the beginning, right? That's the beginning of that that relationship building. So um, to do it because you think it's cool, you know, or um, because you want to have like really cool psychedelic experience. For me, okay, and this is my my paradigm and my way of understanding it. Um, so I don't recommend these plants. Um, in any in any of these plants to do it as a as a recreational experience for me it is a sacred experience and i do believe although there is tremendous data that these that certainly for psilocybin um probably also for ayahuasca uh that that um addiction of all different kinds is significantly decreased working with these plants so too do I believe people can become addicted in their way, and I have seen this many times, to psychedelics, um, where they feel they need to 
that is the way that they get messages. That is the way that they can understand what to do next. That right, And then that's a dependency. And they can feel very attached, like they are not going to be able to move forward if they're not working with these. And this is the way that they get through trauma. And, you know, these plants are, are, were originally, um, and to me, remain very sacred medicine. So they're not just for necessarily daily use for anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, this is from my perspective, you know. And I, and I welcome and love it. This is why I want you on here. Um, when we talk about, um, and maybe this is a good point, maybe a good point in our conversation to talk about the importance of integration. Uh, and maybe the, as you, you've been saying so eloquently, there's like, these are sac- this is a sacred ceremony. This is a sacred event. The set and the setting is really important, right? So when you talk about the idea of like, I, you know, I need it for this or I need it in order to get through, you know, the intention that you got, the mindset and the intentionality and the energetic uh, imprint that you go into, um, you know, an event uh, or an experience or a journey like this, I think is also super important. Can you speak to the importance of set setting uh, and then what happens afterwards as well, right? So the integration, the work that has to be done. I mean, if you only ever, and I, I've heard um, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who if I can get on this podcast, oh, my life would be made. But uh, I, he's talked about you know his use of psychedelics and, and the importance of integration. And I remember him saying, something to the effect of if that's the only portal, like you only, like that journey is just like a little, you know, it's like a little creak, a little opening of the door. And if that's the only thing that you ever do, but you never do any of the integration, the follow-up work, the the personal, you know, this, developing the self-agency and being able to harness that connection with yourself, then all you're doing is just like opening the creek and then leaving and then opening the little creek and then leaving again. Can you speak to the importance of all of those, all of those things, Maya? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, well, what I want to say first, I think, is that, you know, part of what's happening with psychedelics um, and different kinds, and which is, you know, these different kinds of plant medicines that we talk about, whether it be ayahuasca, whether it be um, San Pedro, whether it be psilocybin or mescaline, these are, you know, some of the, the mm-hmm. various um, plant medicines that are, are used. Um, part of what they do is they affect the default mode network in the brain. And the default mode network is kind of the me network of the brain. And it's very inhibitory. It's actually, um, it's very important for like your metacognitive um, processes, but on the other side of it, it's kind of inhibitory of your limbic system, which is your emotions, your memory, especially things like um, your childhood traumas, you know, you're all that baggage, those things that you suppress and repress and compartmentalize so that you can make it through the day. I mean, so you can make it through your life. Um, when that default mode network is shut off, um, which happens in various situations, it can happen in psychosis, um, for example, it can happen in some other ways too, it can happen, um, well, I'll get to how other ways that we can do that. But, um, But one of the ways that it happens is with some of these plant medicines. And when that happens, emotions, memories, childhood traumas can float to the surface, okay? Um, And and that's sometimes really important for us because although, you know, and this is something, right, that we've called, Joseph Campbell called the shadow, right, that we have these um, kind of monsters in the closet or in the basement or in the attic that are 
that we've, we've shut off into these places because they were terrifying to us. And we, we don't feel that we can operate with these monsters around, but actually then, you know, the way I kind of teach about it is then you're, you have, you can't put anything in your closet and, you know, you're never going to go down to the basement. Suddenly like the rest of your house is totally cluttered and you can't operate at all in your home because you're not using your attic and your basement and your closet because you're scared of the monsters that are in there. And very many times when you open up the closet or the basement, you actually look at those things. You know, what, what you're seeing is something that's not actually as scary or it is scary, but you're more equipped now to address whatever those scary things are, you know? So this takes me into the idea of set setting and integration because what you're doing in this, situation of looking at some of these, right? So, uh, like you, you said before that this is, you know, the five, um, you know, 10 years of therapy in five hours sort of idea yeah. that, that that's huge. That's a huge, huge undertaking for you, for any person to, to go through. And it so unpleasant as well. I will say that, you know, people were, and my experience was not with uh, psilocybin or the ayahuasca. It, mine was with MDMA, which will which we can come to. But it was it was work, man. Like it was it, there was a there was a immense concentration of unpleasantness. Like it was, and I had sitters like they're following the map, maps protocol and whatnot. But it was, yeah, it's not for the faint of heart for sure. Yeah, and I mean, some people have you know wonderful, lovely experiences. Um, you know mine tend to be hard. (laughs) (laughs) Same. (laughs) So, um, but that said, I mean, you never know. That's the important thing. Uh, You know, you can come, you know, bless your heart with every intention, all the different, do all the different things and say, this is what I hope this will be about, or please let this be easy. You know, Mm. the experience is going to be, you know, the experience you have is the experience you need to have. And that is not, you can't put in an order necessarily for that. So it's important to know that a lot of times these experiences can be very challenging, can feel incredibly unpleasant because they're very ego dissolving, right? Your me network is kind of shut off. Your ability to repress or suppress things is, is compromised, intentionally compromised. And part of what that does is it actually disrupts this process that we you know, our brains are in all the time called predictive coding, where, you know, we rather, you know, most of us don't realize that we don't actually assess every situation as it is. Uh, That would take too much time for our brains to do. So when we come to a new situation, we take a few details of the situation, and then we fill in the rest with things that have happened before. And this is a great survival skill. It's very effective. It helps us move around in the world and not have to sit and like figure everything out for the first time each time. Um, on the other hand, it means that if you have stories or paradigms that you're operating within that are not necessarily highly functional or are limiting to you in some way based on whatever, however they developed, then when you come to a new situation, you're not necessarily going to assess it appropriately. You might assess it in this old paradigm again and again and again. So the beauty of shutting down the default mode network and disrupting your predictive coding is that you can release these old stories and maybe look with fresh eyes at these situations that are in front of you and maybe change your whole life. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are real potential um, 
effects of, of experiencing this kind of um, plant medicine. The, the, the challenge is, as you say, to have a set and a setting um, that is responsible, that is safe, that is sacred from my point of view, um, someone who really understands the kind of process that's going on. And, um, and I would say like energetically safe too, because there's a lot of, when you're this open, um, there's a lot of potential for, uh, you know, people who may want to take advantage in any number of ways or not even want to take advantage, but may just not be very emotionally healthy or, or not have the capacity to hold the space for you. Right. Like, yeah. you know, one of the things like we were, you know, we were talking about psilocybin a little bit, like it makes you incredibly sensitive to your environment and to interpersonal, uh, re- you know, in- in- interactions. So if you have someone who hasn't done their own work, uh, who can't hold space for you, or you know, like you were saying, can take advantage of you in a number of different ways. Um, I mean, this is also just a recipe for you know, you could re-traumatize, you could make the tra- you could re-traumatize yourself or make the whole situation you know orders of magnitude worse than than it is going into it. So I, I agree with you in terms of really being mindful um, of a safe energetic space and choosing. Um, guides uh, who can who can facilitate an appropriate uh, journey for you, and and don't assume because someone is a shaman or someone is a trained therapist or any of these things that they are necessarily going to hold the space for you without knowing a little bit about them and maybe having an opportunity to vibe with them, you know, talk to a lot of other people if you can, or some people who have had experiences there. Um, you know, these are things which are, are important um, for your safety and your best experience and for your integration as well afterwards. Because, you know, as you're, you know, as you're saying, um, in terms of what Gabor Mate said, it's, it's truly critical to, you know, I, I just think of the hero's journey or the, or the Shiro's journey, right? That heroine's journey. I like to call it the heroine's journey. Yeah. <laughs> you do this, you do this deep dive into the, into the dark night of the soul, into the, into the shadow. Um, and you retrieve these potential treasures, but the idea is that you do retrieve them and then you can bring them back, right? Not, you know, it's not just about finding, finding out what's going on underneath, but it's about how are you going to alchemize this experience and actually not just alchemize it, but actually materialize it. How are you going to integrate it such that you walk and talk and act uh, differently and you bring that change into your own life and into the world? Because that's part of what I think these plant, why these plant medicines are emerging in this way uh, right now is because there's such a need for this kind of awakening. But I see a lot of people getting stuck at that crack in the door again and again and going back for the plant medicine, but, but not necessarily doing all the work of, you know, there's like this excitement about the awakening um, and saying, Ooh, like, you know, there's this consciousness, there's all these things, but not necessarily taking it to the place where um, 
you know, life has become different and your practices in life are, are different and more respectful and more sacred, right? I mean, these are the, are the lessons of these plants in many cases. What would be some uh, integration tools that you like to suggest for people? Is it, do you sort of tailor it based on the person or are there sort of fundamentals that you like? Is there breath work? Is there, you know, harnessing, continuing to harness your relationship with plants? Are there, what are some of the general recommendations you can give for someone in terms of, in terms of integration? Yeah. I mean, I, I wish that there were more people who really helped with that kind of integration. And I think that there will be, you know, especially with maps and, Uh, communities like that. I hope that there will be more therapists and life coaches even, you know, who can just help translate the experience such that it's not uh, just about having to go back for the deep dives more and more, but actually how do I, you know, how do I really bring this into my my life? Um, I do think that, you know, again, my paradigm and my paradigm plant medicine is is very sacred and not for all the time so part of part of the practice is okay am i integrating other kinds of plants into my life um am i working with the plant world you know and working my way up or working my way back or working my way through some of these things like you know i mentioned lemon balm uh but i could also talk about rose um, which are is a plant for the broken heart, you know, and healing. Let's talk about Rose. I am so I love I am so attracted. I have a just a little vial of Rose Auto Essential Oil, and it's just for very special occasions. Tell me, tell me what Rose is for. Well, so Rose is. I mean, Rose is for many things. Right? I mean, it's for passion. It's it's tr- it's really transformative for the heart. Rose for me is a is a beautiful heart medicine, and for people. I mean, speaking of blood pressure. Um, speaking of grief, you know, there are all kinds of ways to work with rose. I do, I recommend doing spiritual plant bathings with rose. So you take a blossom of rose, you boil it in a pot of water, um, and you might add some other things that feel, you know, lovely to you. Um, but, but rose for itself is a, is a balm for the heart. So you know, you, you strain it out after you boil it. And it's just like one blossom. You don't need, you know, a huge pot of roses, even though that sounds pretty. Um, you strain the plant out and then you have that water. You add water to get it to body temperature. And then uh, I, ideally, you take this outside, in my opinion, <laughs> and get naked if you can. And you pour it on yourself or have someone pour it on you. But it can also be done in the shower. Um, and it can also be done, you know, in a bath. And basically what you do is you have this experience of letting the rose work it, work her medicine on, on you um, and on your heart. And it's so beautiful for grief to have this rose medicine. And there are so many other ways, you said, rose essential oil, giving someone a bouquet of roses, um, growing rose plants, you know, growing rose bushes. Um, eating rose hips, making rose tea. I just made all this rose petal honey. That's one of the medicines I like to make in this time of the year. Um, and, uh, you know, and then doing these kinds of spiritual bathings. And it's, it, there are these profound gifts that we can experience in our relationships with all different plants. So again, I think part of the integration is to say, 
what did I, what did I really experience in that journey that I, I had? And by the way, you can journey with Rose. And I, I really deeply recommend and actually guide people through journeys with different plants that are not necessarily psychedelic as we think of them, but are, but give us messages, teach us different things that we really need for our healing and really need to know. And these are things which you can do at any time, right? You don't need to travel somewhere. You don't need to have this special, um, you know, this special particular um, medicine. There, there are all different plants that are able to heal us. And so that's a big part of what I recommend for uh, preparation and for integration and in an ongoing way, because ultimately if we were more generally, when we are more in a deep, intimate relationship with the natural world, um, it's not to say that we don't need uh, master plants. Of course we can always have that relationship in sacred ceremony. There are always going to be things that are traumas or grief or transformations or, or times where we need to do this kind of deep dive or this huge release, but saving it for those special moments and keeping our bodies and our hearts and our, our spirits um, well taken care of in the meantime is I think very important. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, for me, I have found meditation uh, and breath work to be incredibly important. I have never thought of, you know, I, I love what you just said around doing a journey with Rose because every time uh, Major, who's another co-host on the podcast, she ever, whenever she does Reiki on me, she's like, you know what? Your heart is like wrapped up in thorns. <laughs> it's like this orb, but you have like three walls. So I am going to, I'm actually going to try that Rose. Um, and that's also part of, you know, Rose water is uh, my my heritage is Portuguese, but my other part of me is Lebanese. So there's a lot of rose water, orange blossom in some of the desserts, like some of the delicacies uh, for that. So I, I absolutely love that. So thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about master plants. So ayahuasca, San Pedro, you've mentioned them before. They're often called, you know, the mother, you know, she, uh, mother ayahuasca and father San Pedro. It's like the yin and the yang. Um, is there, you know, when we think about things like, you know, when I'm talking in Western terms here, but, you know, treatment, you know, resistant, uh, you know, PTSD or addiction issues or chronic pain issues or, you know, a, you know, even without the proper language, just like a, a spirit that is diseased, you know, like an emotional uh, constitution um, that's diseased. Is there... Is there an order to doing them? Is it ayahuasca first and then, or what is, talk, talk us through ayahuasca and San Pedro. So, you know, the way I learned it is, um, you know, and yeah, we call her mama ayahuasca or, or grandmother mm. actually. And um, San Pedro is, is grandfather, you know, so Simon, they sometimes will call the child, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's because psilocybin can actually be a lot more playful in mm. certain ways. Um, but, you know, in terms of order, I don't, I don't know that there is one, um, because these plants are not always from the same sacred traditions. Um, so it's not, you know, again, this is sort of this mentality that we have everything on a buffet before us and we can kind of take what we want where, um, again, for me, whatever order there might be, if there were an order would be who's calling you. You know, who's calling your attention? 
um, pay attention to those things. And that goes back to that idea of how we've really repressed that inner knowing, that inner voice and those, those callings, those kinds of callings. Um, but they're very real. And so what you want wants you, right? It's like your desires also want you. Like they're also desiring you. That There's a Rumi quote that's in there somewhere, but yeah. yes. Yeah. And you take one step in the direction, they take three steps towards you. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Mama Ayahuasca is the, you know, the embodiment of the first woman of creation, the divine feminine. And, you know, she's considered as a spiritual guide who will show you what to look at and what needs to be worked on. And, um, and will pressure you, <laughs> to put it kindly, to to work on it, to do it, and it can be very painful and it can be very confrontational in these, um, you know, in these journeys. But um, you know, but the idea is uh, that it is for your healing. You know, um, now the and and she's also called the death vine. Uh, she is a vine, a beautiful vine. And um, the idea of that is that you are facing your, you know, it's a death of your ego. You face your own mortality. You face your fear of death. And it's sort of this idea that you have to journey to the underworld before you can journey to the divine. So that is some of the story of, of ayahuasca. And uh, San Pedro also has a really, um, you know, uh, beautiful history and lore um, as the grandfather. And many people actually feel um, that San Pedro, also called Huachuma, is a, um, a more gentle, is the more gentle one of, of the two. Not everybody experiences him that way, but, um, uh, but, I do. I agree that it that that experience can be very different, very gentle, and there are also traditions within working with these plants. So, um, for example, the Ecuadorian uh, approach in general tends to be using much tinier doses um, compared to, let's say, the Peruvian or the Brazilian approach, which might be um, much more of like the the purge and the very um, you know. intense kind of experience where in Ecuador, some of the communities, um, you know, some of the, the healers that, uh, I spoke with were like kind of disgusted by that. Like, why do they need to do it like that? It doesn't need to be strong that way. And they would just give like a teeny, teeny, tiny amount. And it, it wasn't anything like the experience of the more Peruvian model. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, what I hear you saying as well is that it's important for whichever experience calls to you, whichever one you go to first, there's no, you know, order, but that you need to surrender to whatever is coming. So you may go in and be like, I would like to understand the origins of the universe and I want to be able to figure out, um, you know, whatever. And the plant is going to give you what it is that you need. And I think it's important uh, if you can just speak to this for a moment, because I think that so many people, like the word surrender, you know, we often think of like waving the white flag, right? Like this is not, um, this is not a power move. This And this, I think this, a lot of this comes from just like, even at the top of the, you know, our discussion, we were talking about this sort of profane patriarchal world order where surrender meant you lost the war, you were, uh, 
you know, you're the loser, right? But surrendering is actually just like, I'm good with whatever is going to happen right now. Like, can you speak to um, the the concept of surrender, especially when we're when we're talking about this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we're ter- we're terrible at surrender in our. <laughs> society and you just you know again we we are speaking the same language um i don't think surrender is about losing um even though we've we've really associated it with that it's um you know i think a good example is uh the experience that we're in right now as a internationally yes yes, as a as a globe Mm -hmm. um that you know right now we're in this experience we don't have um we don't have control we really do not have control over this experience. There are ways that we can have agency within our own selves. Um, and even that is not always easy, depending on the day. But um, ultimately, you know, we are in basically a big group psychedelic journey right now where we are been, we've been catapulted out of reality. We can never go back exactly to the reality that we were in before. And we, we have to just surrender to the fact that we are on this journey. We don't have to surrender to every aspect of the journey, but we can't change the, the overall experience. We have, to, we have to walk through the fire. We're walking through this fire. And however you experience this fire, it is fire, you know? I don't think most people are going through this being like, you know, like really enjoying every moment of it. Um, if they are, then that's, you know, more power to them, but it's hard work. We're going through hard work. We're looking at ourselves. We're looking at our lives and, and we can't change it. We have to just walk through it. And that is kind of, kind of (laughs) similar to journeying in the sense that you can't put in your order. You can't, you know, you can say, this is how I want it to go. Um, that's fine. You know, and then <laughs> you're not going to get the double cheeseburger that you asked for. It might not, it may not be that. Yeah. <laughs> it will or it won't, but don't yeah. be disappointed or surprised if it's absolutely nothing like what you thought or wanted or asked for. It just, mm-hmm. you know, you have to let go of the how yeah. and just get to the other side and learn what you needed to learn and trust that this is the medicine you need. For right now. I love that. Let's let's talk briefly about MDMA. I know this is a separate and distinct category from plants, um, but like I mentioned before, this is something that has had a, just a profound impact on. You know, I I always thought, you know, in my just in my upbringing, and you know, there's a lot of physical, lots of emotional uh, stuff there, and I always just thought, um, I'm just maybe I'm just not meant to be happy. Like maybe I'm just not like that was just sort of my. I remember being in a mastermind with um, Dr. Patrick Gentempo, who is a chiropractor, like just one of my, he's going to be on the podcast. I'm so excited. Um, And we were in this, we were doing this accountability exercise and we were like, okay, map out your life. You know, the the X axis is like your life. And then the Y axis is, you know, the, you know, the amount of joy that you've experienced through that life or, you know, the amount of happiness. And it was sort of, we had ranked it. I can't remember. It was like maybe one to 10 or something. And I had two points that were above a three. One was the day I, I got the thick envelope, you know, got into my chiropractic school that I wanted to first try. Like it was like a joyous day for me. And at the time I only had one son and it was like the, the, the day that he was born, like the day I felt him move through my pelvis, the, I pulled him out, you know, on me and then, you know, started breastfeeding. Like those were, those were like the two things that were above a three for me. And so I have always really dealt with like, 
depression, even in through chiropractic school, um, like I missed weeks of school and tried the allopathic, like tried the the medicines, just made me feel like a zombie. Like didn't really do much for me. Um, and when it, and without like you know the only the only other experience with medication I've ever had or like you know air quotes drugs is like you know smoking like a you know a blunt or something with someone. So I was really nervous about it. But, and it was, like I said, it was hard AF work. Like I, it was, you know, and the therapist was like, well, it's going to maybe feel like, you know, post-orgasmic, you know, that like nice, you know, after you orgasm, that nice, that was not my experience. That was like, it was like, I was, I, I didn't vomit, but I was almost there. Like the primal noises that I was making, it was like, I was in labor. Like it was like the noises I was making when I was in labor. Um, however. You know, six hours, hardest six hours I've done, but it gave me a lot of empathy for not only myself, but for the, for the, before I went into that experience, it was always like, my father did this, my mother did this, you know, always pointing the finger at all these people. But I had more empathy for their own traumas, how they were unconscious and potentially showed up for me in the, you know, doing the best that they could with the tools that they had. So it, it brought me closer to, in some ways, forgiveness. Um, and the way I describe it, and I spoke to uh, LaPera about this as well, is I went from being like an actor in the play to being someone in the audience, being able to watch the actor and all the other external influences that were you know, on the other actors. Like it gave me more empathy for myself, for what I had gone through, what I had survived. And, and you know, for the people that I had perceived, you know, wrong, like that perceived wrongdoing. And it doesn't mean that it's okay. Like it doesn't mean the things that they did were okay, but it gave me more of an understanding and maybe more of a peaceful, I settled on a more peaceful ground um, around it. Um can you, and so I, I pre-frame all of that because we were talking in the pre-chat how MDMA is separate and distinct from these plant medicines. Can you speak to, and I know that we're not going to, I just want to be respectful of your time here, but you know, when we think about uh, MDMA, how is that uh, in your understanding of it? What are some of the benefits of it? What are some of the uh, potential uses uh, for it? I mean, it's not natural, right? It was, it was like kind of an accident the way it was discovered. Like speak a little bit about MDMA and its, and its potential use. Well, yeah, it's interesting. MDMA and LSD were both kind of discovered very accidentally. Um, and both of them obviously are, <laughs> have become very widely used, um, both recreationally and, and now therapeutically. Um, but, um, you know, MDMA actually has been called an empathogen. It, it actually can help people to develop uh, empathy in that sense. And I think what you described is exactly the kind of medicine it can offer where you, you have that ability to be in, in, you know, to be doing your leading role uh, in the play and then also to be able to be in the audience and have that kind of, let's say, eagle eye view or that audience view so that you can see the bigger picture and feel the different pieces differently and not take everything so personally um, and, you know, and feel empathy for the different players. Um, again, not as a way to say, 
what they've done is okay, but to experience maybe a sense of forgiveness that would otherwise be really difficult, um, but is also incredibly healing for us, right? To offer forgiveness, which doesn't mean you forget and it doesn't mean that it's okay, um, is actually a very healing process for us. So uh, that, that idea of using an empathogen can be really, really helpful for all kinds of um, trauma and trauma-related issues. Um, and, you know, part of what MDMA can do, just, you know, from the standpoint of its physiology is that one of the many things it does, it actually works with different neurotransmitters, but one of the things it's doing is increasing the concentration of serotonin in the synapse between the two neurons. And, you know, when I say two neurons, I mean billions of neurons. In the cleft, right? In between right. the two, yes. In between the two, yeah, exactly. Um, and it can, you know, it can improve mood. It can give you kind of alterations of your sensorium. Um, you know, it can, it can uh, lead to different kinds of um, hallucinations um, and wakefulness and endurance and energy and sexual arousal. And um, so, you know, for many people, it can be a very pleasurable experience. Um, but the idea, you know, in a therapeutic setting is to um, have that experience of, of empathy and that shift that can happen as a result of that. And it sounds like for you, you really had that full, you know, that full experience and, and that you were able to integrate it in a way that changed things for you. Um, you know, and that to me actually is a very sacred use of this, you know, compound, um, or this kind of experience really, right. It's, it's having that ability to have, um, a shift where you can then operate in the world in a more, uh, intact way, in a more integrated way. Um, in a less harmful way to yourself and to others and maybe to the planet um, and, and with a sense of empathy. I mean, you know, for me, a lot of what we know about any of these kinds of medicines that are being looked at um, as transformative for the times that we're in, I mean, why are they emerging in this way when they have been absolutely stigmatized, absolutely illegal? Really, truly, and, yes. And I was just having a conversation the other day, someone was interviewing me about this same topic and they said, you know, like, um, you know, how we were talking about the stigmatization of cannabis actually. And, and kind of, I said, you know, it's amazing to me that it's still cannabis is, is so stigmatized, even as it's becoming legalized, even as it's becoming corporatized, there's still this huge stigma. Whereas in, for, for some reason, and you know, I'll say what I think the reason is in a minute, but somehow, um, you know, things like ayahuasca and peyote and, and San Pedro and psilocybin in particular, um, and MDMA and ketamine, right? I mean, that they're, they are fast-tracking fast tracking through um, where they're being, I'm not saying they're, you know, they're still not legal, but they're being decriminalized in more and more places. Um, the places you would expect in the U S at least, you know, it's like, you know, Berkeley and, you know, Denver, mm -hmm. and Portland, Oregon. But, but, you know, the fact is that they are um, being explored so widely and so robustly in academic settings 
Um, so it's like they've, they've come back with a vengeance. And to me, because I believe in the consciousness of, of these beings and these entities, um, I think it's because they know that we need them right now. And they have made their way, you know, uh, grandmother ayahuasca has made her way out of the jungle and said, you know, I'm here for those who are ready for those I call, you know, and you know, not everybody needs this. Not all people need this. Um, but for the particular people who do and who are ready, I will call those people, you know, psilocybin too, these different kinds of experiences. And, and I want to add here too, that we've talked mostly about, you know, going on journeys. There's also microdosing. Um, and I want to just mention that because microdosing of something like psilocybin, um, for example, or even LSD, you know, these are also being studied as, as being very transformative for a lot of psychiatric conditions that are absolutely intractable, you know, and, and debilitating, debilitating, um, that the microdosing can be enough. Um, and I have seen that be the case, that it is absolutely transformative without the whole psychedelic experience, without, you know, the purge and the this and the that and the, you know, so I think as we see these academic studies translating into, um, you know, either legalization or decriminalization or um, a way that, you know, there can be prescribers of these uh, different entities. And of course, some of them like psilocybin is something that people can grow. You know what I mean? This is a very sustainable medicine, actually, as compared to, let's say, ayahuasca, you know, where I mean, not to say that it's not sustainable to work with that plant, but be, if the demand is high enough, you know, that vine may not be able to keep up, whereas psilocybin is something, you know, it's mushrooms, and it's yes. very generative, yes. Yes. very quickly. So, um, you know, so I just want to say that, again, it's not all about, um, you know, necessarily having to do it's this. It's not the big hero. You don't need the big hero dose. You can also, and I'm so glad that you brought this up because I was going to ask you, that was my next question. was like, let's talk about microdosing. You know, can we habituate to it? Is there a frequency to it? Is there, you know, as a, even if you've had a journey, a bigger journey, is there a way that this can facilitate or continue to facilitate healing or without the big journey? Can we do, you know, in, in terms of becoming, uh, more attuned with and embodied, um, you know, and there's, you know, we can talk about mushrooms. There's this really great documentary called um, Fantastic Fun Guy. Fantastic yes, Fun actually, Guy. I know Louis Schwartzberg and he's a wonderful human. So yeah, yeah I, I love that documentary. It's so, so great. So is there, do you recommend, like, would you, is that another way that we can like kind of stepwise if, if grandma is not calling us, you know, if grandma ayahuasca is like not speaking to us, but maybe we're like, you know, we want to talk to the playful child a little bit, is the microdosing, is there a frequency that you like? Is it, you know, or, or does that really depend on the person? Most people agree that you do microdosing um, ev like periodically, like every third day, every fourth day, something like that, because there can be um, an acclimating mm -hmm. uh, or it can make you start to feel altered. Some people have, have described that as well. So um, with microdosing, it's periodic. Um, it's a, it should be a dose that um, does not cause you to feel altered. So the idea is you can do your whole day, do your whole life. It should not impact you. 
um, in terms of, you know, making you feel odd or strange or anything like that. I mean, you might feel more relaxed um, in general, right? I mean, there's, um, you know, this is the idea behind it. And that, you know, you might do it for a period of a month, three months, you know, two months, three months, something like that, and take a break. And then, you know, you, you, you see, you know, you, this is then, you know, and it still requires integration, um, potentially, but it's, it is, I think, a gentler way of experiencing some of the shifts, um, and some of the, um, awakenings that you may want to have without kind of doing that whole, and, and of course, you know, we haven't talked about medical contraindications. And I do want to just mention that, um, you know, it's particularly true for um, ayahuasca, uh, but also for other psychedelics that having a personal or family history of psychosis uh, can be a real contraindication because you're suppressing that default mode network. And in people who may experience, may have experienced psychosis, um, their default mode network is already maybe not operating fully or maybe imbalanced in some way. So it is important to um, really investigate, you know, if you have a family history and certainly if you have a personal history. And then there are many medications, um, mostly medications that are uh, psychoactive. So antidepressants of all kinds, SSRIs, you know, the MAO inhibitors, um, but also things like, um, or tr- you know, anything that's sedative, uh, stimulants, but also things like antibiotics or antihistamines or steroids or, um, you know, any of any any of these um, altering medications, um, and then some, and then of course, you know, if you have liver dysfunction or you have epilepsy. Um, or you have really significant high or low blood pressure, or if you've had a traumatic brain injury, um, you know, or cardiac issues, those again would be reasons to really investigate. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people, that's a lot of people. Well, it is a lot of people. And I, you know, that's why I talk about working with other plants. um, And that's why I talk about things like microdosing, right? I mean, in other words, there's, there's, this is, this is not necessary for everyone. And it is not um, so important to do that, you know, someone should put their life on the line. Um, and, and I think it should be a conversation, you know, I mean, I hope that these will become conversations that people can have with their healthcare providers, because, um, because just, you know, pretending that this isn't happening is not helpful when, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of people are, are, are experiencing these things from around the world. You know what I mean? So, um, I think, you know, I think this needs to be an important part of the conversation is to make sure that it's, it's right for you physically. This has been such a wealth of information and I absolutely love the lens that you have put on this in terms of really developing a relationship with all plants, not just the ones that are going to alter our default mode network or play with our visual cortex or or what have you. So I'm so thankful that you are the first person that I have spoken to on this subject um, on the podcast. And I wanted to, just in closing, uh, I know that you have a certification program. Is this for 
uh, practitioners only? Is it for the general public? Like if people want to learn more about you and more about your work, where can people find you? Absolutely. Um, people can go to my website, which is drmaya.com, D-R-M-A-Y-A.com. And um, I do have a certification and we have a whole array. For me, it's very important that um, all different kinds of people communicate with each other, artists, doctors, you know, healers, um, psychologists, right? So we have actually a beautiful array of different professionals and others who come together th- to go through this certification to do this deep dive in many of the kinds of topics that we talked about today. Um, and then I teach herbalism and, um, you know, some other, other different things. And I actually have a little program on, on uh, the science of, of psychedelics as well. Wonderful. Th- this has been so great. Thank you so much, Maya. This has been wonderful. It was a pleasure. I loved our conversation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.